Hello there, folks. Ben Mitchell here, Editor-in-Chief at Squiggly, welcoming you to another episode of Independent Animation, the companion podcast to the Squiggly book of the same name, in which we showcase and speak with the indie artists and filmmakers who operate outside of the mainstream to create truly unique work through truly unique processes. And it also functions as a nice way of catching up with some of those talents who featured prominently in the book, about what they've been up to since, which is what we're doing today, as we welcome the incredible Signe Bauman, a Brooklyn-based filmmaker originally hailing from Latvia, who's among that unique group of independent animators that have achieved the seemingly unachievable by completing a full-length feature film on their own steam and outside of the mainstream studio construct. And this places Signe alongside the likes of Bill Plimpton, Sebastian Loddenbach, Nina Paley, Don Hertzfeld, and listeners of this podcast may recall our chats with Joel Benjamin, Nicholas Defina, and Dan Ekus in episode 4, where we focused on the realities and challenges of undertaking such a task, with varying degrees of external support versus going it alone. In the book, I spoke with Signe Bauman about her first feature-length venture, the impactful and witty Rocks in My Pockets, which presents a stark history of personal and familial battles with mental illness. An organic extension of the director's prior short-form projects, this film set a stylistic mixed-media precedent that her latest feature, My Love Affair with Marriage, has in turn built upon. We spoke with Signa Nero the start of production back in 2016, in the first episode of the second season of our other podcast series, Intimate Animation, for which the themes of this story, and indeed a significant percentage of her work in general, are a fit. She often uses her films to shine a spotlight on the psychology of relationships and sexual experience, and this film turns up the brightness of that spotlight to an nth degree, especially as regards the former. The story is of Zelma, an Eastern European woman in search of a husband, whilst beholden to all manner of intricate brain functions and bodily reactions that determine her behaviour and the decisions she makes. Along the way, she is dogged by three mythology sirens, shape-shifting creatures who exert enormous pressures on Zelma to conform to traditional social standards of femininity. Through song, no less. While witty and peppered with musical numbers, the film does make for tough viewing in parts, with the toxic turns that certain relationships she establishes along the way presented in a very stark light. And overall, it's an incredible feat of animation, well-deserving of its successful run at festivals including Tribeca, Stuttgart, Fantoche, Edinburgh, Kaboom, Anima, Brussels, and MAF, among others, not to mention picking up awards at AnimaFest Zagreb, Viborg, Trion, Frederikstad Animation Festival, Woodstock Film Festival, New Cheetos Airport Animation Festival, Annie Film, and a special jury distinction at Annecy. The next leg of the film's incredible journey will be an extended theatrical run in the States that Signe will be actively participating in. With the first of those dates imminent, we figured it'd be a good time to catch up before she gets busy again. So, it is my great pleasure to again welcome the wonderful Signe Bauman. My love affair with marriage, uh, we talked to you about this film about six years ago, right at the sort of outset of production. Um, and I was listening back to that conversation today, uh, A, to kind of make sure I didn't, you know, repeat myself too much. Um, something that kind of struck me, we didn't actually go into the story in that much detail. We talked a lot about the kind of process and the prep, but yeah, I thought that would be a good starting off point would be if you could tell us a bit in your words about what my love affair with marriage is uh, all about. It's a story of a young woman, Zelma, who uh, and her like twenty-year-long quest for perfect love and lasting marriage. So it's like a kind of a, uh, a, a in a in one sentence. But of course, the story is more complex because there's biology uh, who is commenting on her neural processes, what happens when Zelma falls in and out of love, and then there are three. Uh, 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 mythology sirens, I call them, who follow her and then I te- tell her how to be a woman and how to behave and, and punish her and lure her into, uh, in a ways that, uh, that where she shouldn't go. So, so in, uh, so it's like a kind of a story about a woman, an individual, a person who, uh, wants to, uh, live the fullest of her life, but she is squeezed between the two forces of the, her own biology and the societal pressures. And then there, and then, and then the space that she is left, she, it has, it's so small 
you know, so that she, where, uh, what, what does she do? How she can survive between the, the two forces. And so that's what the story is about. You know, often in your work, there are these kind of autobiographical threads and it felt like this film really kind of built on some of the shorter form work that you'd kind of established yourself with, you know, earlier on in your career. And so does Zelma's story kind of exclusively come from or draw upon your own lived experience with relationships or is it kind of observational as well? You know, if you, so how do you tell a story? You know, my, my life is a mess, right? It's like, it's a messy uh enterprise it's like i like and then you try to squeeze all this like richness into what it has to be like 80 90 pages of the script you know so you have to simplify you have to uh you know uh, generalize and you have to make it also visual so i would say yes the film was inspired by my real life events you know that some certain things happen in my life but i also feel that by making my my life experiences, when I strip them away from too much context, too much detail, they become more universal. And I feel it's not just my experiences, but you know, these are experiences that a lot of women have gone through. You know, so mm-hmm. I feel it's not just like my personal. So I feel as a as a human being, as a as a person, I share my personal experience. And I also hope it is universal enough to reach other people and that we can, like, say, yes, that we experience this thing together. Uh, it makes that sense. But that is, as an artist, I feel like I'm, that's what I'm very interested in. Uh, I'm interested in in a, a person living in the world, right? So, and when I was younger, I ignored the larger world, like political world. I said, it doesn't touch me. I'm not in charge of it. I don't fucking care. And then horrible things happened, you know, like uh, when you ignore the world and then you're not ready for them. You know, it's like, it's like pandemic, you know, like you're sitting here, la, 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 and there's this disease somewhere in China. And then it slowly, suddenly comes to you. And suddenly you, your whole life is disrupted for two years. And I feel that, uh, you know, Zelma is just trying to get her life and get on with it. And she just wants love and that's all she wants. And then the country she lives in collapses and then it all, it changes everything, you know. I just, I, I find it interesting how we as individuals like live our lives and how the larger political uh, forces influence our, and influence our lives, but also there's a tension between individual and society that interests me quite a lot. I managed to catch it at Frederickstad toward the end of last year, uh, where I, if I remember correctly, I think it did win in the feature category. Um, yes. And then again at math in Manchester uh, about a month or so later. And uh, it's very much you. Like it has so many of the hallmarks of your artistry, your storytelling style. It's very, very funny. But also what I found really compelling about it is it lays out a variety of, I think, quite serious components of relationships, toxic behaviors, toxic dynamics, um, abuse, how that can exist in relationships and both an overt way, but also kind of in a passive way, like through microaggressions, pressure, little cultural things that are considered acceptable depending on where you, you come from or where you are. And it feels like since production began, I think it was sort of 2015, 2016, like the world had started to have more mature social conversations around those issues. And I was wondering, was that something that was already kind of in the air when you started writing the script? Oh my goodness, talk about it. It's it's like, yeah. So I started writing the script in September 2015. It's a long time ago, a long, long, long time ago. It was before everything that happened in the last seven, eight years, right? <laughs> so in 2015, I believed that we will have a woman president in the United States. Like, I mean, it was obvious, right? And then look what happened. And then while I was writing the script, I thought, oh, my film is going to be not relevant. You know, once we have a woman president, then, I mean, that's it, you know? Like, I mean, that's that the work is done. (laughs) (laughs) And then it turned out it wasn't. And uh, and then this whole 
a horrible thing that happened with that. And then also uh, talking about like, you know, uh, Ukraine, you know, like uh, my, my pain and my agony seeing what is happening in Ukraine and the attitude uh, of this uh, colonizing powers, you know, like trying to take over. I think that, and then, and then patriarchy, it's all connected together, like to me, right, the way I see it. And, and and you're right that the conversation about gender and colonialism has gotten more serious and more actually real and and change is more possible than ever. But I also feel that there are enough forces in the society that uh, that don't want to change, right? So if you want to change, you have to press on. And this one thing that really, really kind of struck me when I was working on the film uh, I was like, okay, well, I am ending the film on this like note where the gates open, right? Like that yeah. she finally, she finally can see, she can finally see this new world. And I'm like, what is this new world, right? What is that thing that she sees? And what is the end credit song? Because I had to write the end credit song. I was like, what does that song say? And I was like, so what is the thing that I imagine for the future? Like, what is that thing that Zelma really needs and wants? And we all need and want. How is that society uh, organized in a way how we as individuals would be happier and more equal and would have true intimacy without, without need to lie and hide our true selves, right? Yeah. And I just... Like I was stunned by it. like three months, I couldn't come up with like an image of or idea what it could be, and I realized that I lived under this certain social structures for too long, you know. Right. Yeah. And so, and I'm like, okay, so maybe uh, my generation shouldn't come up with these structures. Maybe this other new generation should understand what they want from the future society, right? But I do I do think that the end credit song uh, comes up with answer uh, or at least a, a mood, like mood of hope and inspiration and desire for this equality and true intimacy and equality in relationships. I thought the biological angle the kind of scientific breakdown uh the sequences now that was a really interesting way of kind of going about presenting why she's making these decisions why she feels compelled to go this way or go that way um and when you were researching uh those elements for the film did you find that that kind of had a kind of therapeutic application um when it came to like your own uh, reflections of that nature yeah, actually, uh, the, uh, you know, learning about neuroscience was, uh, one thing that kind of really expanded my, uh, like way how I, I, I look at relationships or even in short communications between people that the knowledge, uh, that uh, a lot of our interactions are, you know, you know, are because, or like, I mean, you know, like, like a biochemical processes, you know, like we are living things and there is a lot of biological things that are biochemical. And, and then, uh, you know, when I feel like right now, I feel a lot of anxiety because we are preparing for the release. And, uh, and I'm thinking this anxiety, I wonder what cocktail of neurotransmitters it is, you know, but, uh, but you know, the, the, the biggest surprise for me when I, I did the research of, of the, of the uh, neuroscience was the, the, uh, learning about oxytocin. That was really kind of like eye opening. Um, because, you know, uh, oxytocin has the reputation as, as, uh, you know, the hormone of love. Uh, yeah, let's do, this is solution to all our problems, right? But then you, but when you look at the oxytocin, what is this uh, neurotransmitter actually? What's the purpose, and what is it really doing? And it is a primary uh, uh, a neurotransmitter that is uh, a hormone actually that is meant to 
uh, at the childbirth, it's supposed to work for contracting the uterus to, to have the contractions. And then when uh, the baby is born, then the, it's also opening the nipples for the milk to flow out. You know, and as a side effect, this, this, you know, transmitted this hormone creates uh, the feeling of bond between mother and the baby. And the baby also, because it's fed of the milk that is full of this hormone, then it also feels the bond to the mother. But the side effect of that is that everybody outside the bond is the enemy. It's like when you, uh, when the, when the, uh, a dog just gives birth to like literal puppies and you are the, you know, you are the, the owner of the dog and you, you know, you take care of the dog, you're take carer and you want to pet the dog and the dog goes like, <laughs> right? It is yeah. because it's oxytocin. And so, and that is what I kind of my discovery was that this oxytocin uh, creates the love and the bond, but it also creates the hatred. And when you go to the sports game and you are rooting for the team and you are feeling so united with your friends standing together and cheering for your team, and then when you walk out and you see the fans of opposing team, you want to beat them up. And that's oxytocin, right? Hmm. And and so that, that's that's how politicians manipulate us. They say we are the white folks, and we should create, we should hate everyone who is not white. And you just go there because it's like yeah. so easy. It's like it's like um, it's it's like very primer, you know. Like, and you need, hmm. and I think, and that's where the. The message of the film is like use your prefrontal cortex. Like like every time when you feeling this like strong bond, if you are able to analyze what is happening to you, you're kicking in the prefrontal cortex and you say, "This is like a hormone working, and I should really make a more kind of rational decision about my actions." You know, yeah. and 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 that is uh, kind of my my hope for. Um, for people who watch the film, that they could understand, like what, like they, they shouldn't be the puppets in the hands of of this hormone, right? They should be yeah. really aware. You know, the, the 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 one thing that also, like for example, very often you see, ma like a married couple, they love each other, right? And then they have misunderstanding or whatever happens, and they divorce, and they loved each other, and then when they divorce, they hate each other so much, they rip each other out, like they, 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 you know, they, they fight over property, they fight over children, and there's so much hatred, right? And, you, yeah. and you're like, but you were just in love, like a year ago, you were so much in love, right? And that is, that is the, the, the same hormone, it's just the other mm. side of it. And I find it so fascinating to me personally. And I also think that knowing that gives you so much power over your actions, right? Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of um, the point you made just then about the politicians as well, kind of using it to their advantage. I think there's a really pernicious culture of you know, people, pundits, people who are kind of personalities on YouTube or whatever platform that are amassing the adoration of people, you know, because it's easy to digest the content they put out. It's easy to kind of put these people on a pedestal and sort of adore them. And then these people become ideologically, like, brainwashed. And I feel like, I think there might be something to that as well. You know, that sort of, uh, these young men for example being kind of steered toward really really like dubious um uh, uh people to look up to yeah no it is uh, i i think you're right uh that is because people want to belong they want mm. to belong to something more than to just them it gives them meaning and purpose right and yeah. and and also then once you choose to follow someone because of this or that, then you feel the, uh, it, the feeling gets enforced by, you know, the group, you know, like the, the group of the people around you and you, and you start feeling for reals that you belong together and that that's a group and that you, everybody outside the group is your enemy, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, yeah. like, and, and as you said, you know, that is, uh, uh, Rife with possibilities for manip being manipulated and misused, abused, and you know, 
like yeah. toxic uh, relationships are not just uh, romantic relationships, you know, it could be also relationships between fans and, and the people they follow, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, with this film, a significant development, I think since the last one, you took on the narration for all of Rocks in My Pockets. And with this film, there was like a full cast. And was that always sort of crucial to this film, uh, considering the musical element? Or was there a point where you thought you might kind of similarly approach it, like take on the narration and the dialogue yourself? Uh, so after I finished the Rocks in My Pockets, so I made the Rocks in My Pockets based on, on, on the voiceover and also my voice because it was also a very budgetary consideration. Like it was really important for the budget. So I never made a feature film before. And so this seemed like a, a way how I could manage it, right? And so, yeah, and the production was, uh, you know, very cheap you know and and the film it is what it is but you know like any normal person i hate my voice and so uh like every time like and i had to watch the film again and again and again for you know for when you uh, quality tests and editing you know like you editing and quality tests and editing and quality tests. so there is a lot of watching and then uh you watch dcp and then you watch the premiere and you watch this and that and at some point i I just cannot hear my voice. I hate it so much. And I, I like every time when the film would start and I just hear the first line, I just had this like feeling I have to get out of here. Yeah. I can't, I can't. And I thought oh, I, in my next film, I would really like to uh, have an actor, right? And and because I have not done that kind of film, I, I was just, it just was easy to write it, right? And I wrote this script and... Uh, Oh, and the songs I write in the songs. And it's like, oh, anything I can imagine or like it's going to be easy. And then it, of course, turned into a hell because you want to work. If you, if you choose to work as actors, you want to work with the best actors and the best actors are SAG after actors and SAG after would not give discount or, you know, like a low budget discount to animated feature films. And yeah. so uh, we had to work uh, with the same rates as Pixar and Disney, you know, and uh, so, mm. uh, and and that's why we ran a Kickstarter campaign and um, it, it was a lot of trouble. But I think the, the result is spectacular, to my opinion. The, the actors, to, to work as actors is like, I think a really, uh, you know, good decision for this project also. Um, I also don't want to do the same film over and over, like my voiceover film again, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so then, then people say, I was disappointed that this film didn't have your voice. And I'm like, yeah, but do you really want me to do the same film over and over, right? And I also, I felt that, okay, so I, with rocks in my pockets, I, I was like, okay, I finished that, right? Let me go a tiny bit more ambitious, push the envelope to see how I can expand, like how I can, get more into it, you know, like, and I had really good partners, like my partner Sturgis, he helped me with sets, you know, we made spectacular sets and, uh, and the group of artists that work here, they really made everything so much better, so much more complete and accomplished, right? So the film, although it is the, uh, the budget is like one million and a half, right? It does look more, it lo looks more expensive. And and I like that, you know. And then also we worked with one of the best sound uh, production studios in Europe, which is in Luxembourg. Uh, it's called uh, a. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm like what? Oh, Philophone. Sturgis is yelling. Philophone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Philophone. Uh, Loïc Colignan was the mixer and. Uh, 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 we had like a really amazing, talented team of the sound production work there. And uh, I, I don't know if you paid attention to sound at all, but you know how difficult uh, is like to you for animated film. You have to create sound from nothing, from scratch. And yeah. then we had so we had a lot of like sound effects. Every little thing, everything that you know, everything has to be a sound effect. So that's one. Then everything had to have atmosphere, you know, the atmosphere, the, all the space. Like what kind of space is that? Like what is it is is there like a what is the hum, you know, of the space? That that had to be created. And then um 
And then we have to have these 24 songs. And each song has like, you know, five instruments playing or even more like 10 instruments, you know, the musical instruments. And then the three voices, you know, everything had a separate layer. We had over a thousand soundtracks in the, in the thing, you know. And so mm -hmm. then when the remixer, Loi Calignon, came in, he had to organize all these soundtracks around in a surround system, like mm -hmm. e assigning to each speaker what sounds they're going to play. You as an audience sitting in a room, you hearing how the sound goes around. And, uh, you know, quite a few audience members had told us that they had this immersive experience when mm. they, when, of course, when it's played, uh, from a good sound system and, uh, good, uh, in a good cinema, you know, it is an immersive experience. Like the, in the beginning, there's a thunder, you know, and the thunder go, it starts from behind and it goes around you, you know, it's, I think it's amazing and it enhances the film and it makes it amazing. And so if I did just my voiceover, right? Like, and like I have a, my little voiceover and no sound effects, like in drops in my pockets, there are no sound effects whatsoever, only music and voice. Uh, it would be, you know, different film. And I, and in this film is an absolute necessity that we have 23 songs because that's how you're going to show the societal pressures. And uh, the, the, the choice I made as a scriptwriter was to have these singing characters. So then suddenly everything has a necessity, you know, for the story, to support the story. Yeah. yeah and with the music, because we talked a bit about Christian before and how excited you were to work with him, and now the film's done, uh, I'd be really interested to hear about the way in which you two kind of work together. So I'd assume you wrote the lyrics, and then would there have been much back and forth as far as getting the sort of instrumentation or the tone correct to what you had in your mind? It is uh, funny with, uh, with the lyrics because, uh, I mean, I, I am a failed poet, you should know that, right? Uh, because I, <laughs> I, when I was young, uh, I think I was like, I was a published poet when I was like 17 and I tried to be a poet, but I think that I, I don't really have the talent for it. But you know, but there is a, some kind of feeling that you can express as a poet. And I, I so, and some skill or understanding how language works helps, but also English is my third language. So in some ways it gives you greater freedom, but also more restrictive because I only know so many words. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but uh, Sturgis helped me also with the lyrics, like, uh, also because uh, the lyrics are written in a free form and mm -hmm. um, so there was uh, each uh, line like sometimes they rhyme sometimes they don't but each line had a different amount of syllables so when uh, we presented Christian with these songs uh, with the lyrics he said oh guys I don't know if I can write a song because this doesn't, this doesn't have that beat that you need for the music you know and they're like, of course, you know, Christian, just just give us, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, write something. And or like, if you need to change something, we rewrite it, right? And so then he said, okay, if I need something, I, I will ask you to rewrite. And then he started sending the songs without any requests to add or take out or anything. He, I mean, out of the 24 songs, he maybe took out two, two, two syllables, you know? No. I was, and so because he wrote it um, in a in a, a kind of like a folk jazz uh, style, where there is a structure to the music, but also it is more kind of jazzy uh, way. So there is more flexibility of what the melody would do, and so also because uh, most of the songs are extremely short, like thirty seconds to one minute. So uh, he didn't have to develop the the like. Uh, classical song. Now, at the end credit song, though, as a different story. So it was really easy to work with Christian on 23 songs. On the 24th song, though, uh, uh, which is the end credit song. And we said that song has to be in entirely different style because it is uh, Zelma's song. And I said, well, I want to write it in a, as a pop song. And so Christian said, okay, write this as a pop song. So, uh, you know, when, when we were working on, uh, I was in Luxembourg at the time, uh, working on the post-production sound, and I just wrote like three pages of like 
free form kind of poetry. And I, I was like, okay, here, Christian, three pages of free form poetry. I do your magic, right? Because I'm used to him doing magic. Yeah. And he's, he just, he, it took him like eight hours to get back to me and said, this is crap. You know, I can't write nothing to this. He says, why don't you go and Google how to write a pop song and then, and then get back to me. <laughs> 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 so I Googled how to write a pop song and it's very structured. It's very, very, very rigid structure, you know, very unforgiving. You have to actually be a poet to write that, that, that lyrics, you know, and oh God, and how I suffer. Like, first of all, what do I say? How, how do I wrap the song? Like, end, end of the, uh, like, it's an end credit song. I have to wrap up everything that happened before and I have to give a audience also the glimpse into the future, right? That's how I felt uh, because the song is like a funnel. It's like it goes from the past into the future. And I had to give them that feeling and the, in the words. And I'm like, I don't know. And so I, uh, it took me three weeks of, of like intense torture. I was like tortured. I couldn't, like I couldn't write. And I slowly, somehow slowly the text emerged. And then finally there was a text. And I sent it to Christian, right? The, the whole thing. And he didn't reply. He, uh, but eight hours later, you know, he worked over the night and eight hours later in the morning, he sent me the song. It was done, finished. Wow. He, yeah. And I said, Christian, how did you do that? And he said, oh, your lyrics are inspiring. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So I think that our collaboration is Christian. It's a, it's a very good one. I, I think that we understand each other in a, in a way how we don't really use many words. You know, we communicate through emails and I, we talk about the style of music. I, I send him, I never, I, I don't work with a temporary track ever because I feel it's humiliating or it's demeaning for a composer to have a, a track, already existing track, and they have to repeat exactly the same thing. I feel that is not how I want to force my ideas on a creative person. So I send Christian just like samples of like moods of like, uh, you know, what kind of gets me thinking. And so then he creates his own music entirely in independently. And sometimes, very rarely, you know, they're all like, yeah, it, it doesn't quite work for me here, right? But most of the times, uh, he's he gets precisely what I, I'm looking for. The hardest thing was, though, to write the music for a biology. And I, I don't know if you paid attention to biology uh, uh, score that uh, goes under the biology voiceover. Um, because, you know, like, what instrument you're going to use? This is biology. It's entirely separate existence. Like, it's a microcosm, uh, which you yeah. never see. Like, what it is. And so, Christian offered cello, and cello seems so emotional. And I'm like, this is not emotional. This is something else, right? And then, uh, and then maybe, uh, flute, and maybe this, and maybe that, right? And then finally, somehow we came to conclusion that it has to be shamanic drums, like the drums, <laughs> like a percussion. Because the mood, the way how I describe the mood of the biology has to be like moody, ancient, mysterious, also like a, like a thunderstorm, you know, like a, yeah. like where you cannot explain everything, but you feel it, you know. Yeah. And, and so the, the percussions turned out to be, the perfect instrument for that and so and i'm very 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 impressed and very happy with what christian did like i get very excited talking about sound and music for the film because no. you know i am a i am a visual artist and a writer artist you know i work in this quiet space i never listen to music when i work you know because it's just like it's i feel uh like a music is very strong stimulus to me. You know, when I listen to music, I can only listen to it. I cannot do anything else. And so when I work, I, I, I work in silence, you know, or white noise or something. And so when, when I finally get to work with the music, it's just so exciting. You know, it's like, uh, you know, the silent images, they suddenly become alive. They like, 
when the character walks through the space and you hear the steps, everything becomes more real. And you know, the greatest compliment that people had told me about the film, they say, I, I usually hate animation, but with your film, I forgot it was animated. And I'm like, it's not just like my drawings or, or three-dimensional backgrounds, right? But it's also the sound. It just gives the, it, it makes people believe that these are real people. Do you know, like experiencing yeah. things? Yeah, I, um, we were just in Montreal uh, for a vacation a couple of weeks ago, and we went by the National Film Board of Canada, um, and they let us sit in on Toral Cove as a new film, and that was being scored uh, at the time, all sort of mixed. And they let us sit in on the sound sessions for that for a little while. And that was a real treat, like to kind of, you know, go behind that curtain and see kind of, you know, different sort of, uh, see the film, I guess, from a different aspect. Uh, at one point, it was just sort of watching it with just the music and nothing else. And yeah, it really does kind of make, you know, such a world of difference. Yeah, this, the sound, you know, I feel like a lot of animators, especially, don't don't have a budget or don't have, like, brain power or, you know, like, uh, they only think about visuals and then the sound becomes, like, afterthought, you know? Mm. And and for me, it's like this, the sound is everything. It's like, it's a half of a film. Of course, not half of the film, but, you know, it's almost a half of a film. Because it's yeah. a, it's like if it's a it's a very important part. It's like you you even in life when you walk around with like uh, something blocking your ears, it would be entirely different experience than when you walked around without nothing blocking your hearing. So yeah, it's just uh, like for me uh, also like when people say, "Oh, you make these films that talk too much. They talk too much. Your films talk too much, right?" And right. then like. I mean, who says how to make films? You know, a film is audio, audio visual medium, right? It's a film is like visual, like a moving images plus the sound. And I, like, you know, you don't, why do you care that it talks? You know, it's, it's part of the soundtrack. You know, it's part of mm -hmm. what is going on in the film. So yeah, like, uh, yeah, people people had been like uh, like you know like you film rocks in my pockets. It's like wall to wall voiceover, too much talking, too much talking. Your new film, oh, there's lots of talking and singing. Everything is going on all the time. <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe that reflects my personality. I don't know. It's interesting as a pre-selector um, and curator. Sometimes you know, looking at you know, lots and lots of films that come into a festival or an event. I think that people, other people in that role, they get really kind of hardened to films that use a lot of voiceover because so many of those films that they have to see, and certainly I've had to sit through a few, so many of them don't really have anything to say. They are just kind of filling the space with dialogue. And I think that that sort of, maybe that makes them a bit too... I don't know, um, strict or uh, unreceptive to films like yours that are very dialogue heavy, that actually have a lot of interesting things to say, that, that are saying things that I don't really see being said very often in films. And it's a shame because I feel like they're probably missing out if they're being sort of turned off by, you know, just the fact that, you know, narration or dialogue is being used in the way that it is. The attitude is like, oh, you should you should do less with words. You should, you know, do more with, you know. I quiet. know, I know. So yeah, the, I, I, you know, because the, where I, I stand, you know, I, I see a little different angle, which is probably maybe not in not a very correct interpretation, right? But I feel that I have seen so many male-driven voiceover films, and nobody objects to those, right? But once you start doing female-driven voiceover film that tells how it feels on the inside of a female, suddenly everybody starts yelling and screaming and saying, oh, you can't do voiceover-driven films. And I'm like, oh, it's just because you don't want to hear what female is thinking, what's on her mind, right? Uh, maybe there's like you want to project on a female thinking she's like canvas of your ideas of who she is and i don't know i don't know why uh like a, a film with uh telling how it feels to be a female person 
from inside, right? How she feels, what she's thinking while you're looking at her. Why would that bother you, right? But it does bother some people and they don't always know why, but it bothers them. I, I, I like it's I, I kind of like it that they get bothered actually, you know. And I, I mean, I'm not going to tell you exactly. I could, I could go specific and tell you who said what. You know, I'm not going to go, right? But it is just interesting how uh, the, the bias is like the people are not even aware that they have a bias. So, yeah. yeah. But anyway, it's interesting. And it's interesting also, like, to, you know, when you were mentioning about the industry uh, that you, you know, you're working on now changing and more women, land producers, women directors, women producers. In, like independently and i'm working outside the you know the studio structures and i'm working like uh, partly probably i am working independently because i, I it's just uh, i i can i live in i i determine my own work i determine what's gonna what i'm gonna do and if i you know you know what i mean i i I, like I'm in control, in charge of what is going to happen to my work and to me. Uh, where if I worked in a big studio, I would probably uh, be hindered because of this or because of that. You know, like so. I'm working as an independent artist gives me uh, greater freedom, but it also is as limitations. It's like I am. Uh, I can only take my work so far because I don't have major funding. Like for example, we are gonna we are going to qualify the film for Oscars, and I have like I mean, it's just like it's impossible for the film to even come close to the award because we don't have a multi billion multi million marketing program, you know, like we, the budget. We we just have just a couple of hundred dollars, and that's all we have, you know. <laughs> but uh, but it, I mean, you still run. The Oscar because it's like as I say you know it's a lottery you know one one uh, zero point zero 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 one chance that you can win. Yeah, absolutely, go for it. And I think you know it's it's even with that sort of percentage, you know, it would be such a nice thing. Like every once in a while, like I think the sort of closest sort of came to like a real like underdog. Um, oh God, I keep forgetting this. I, I, this didn't even happen. I keep having this fake memory that Marion Max won an Oscar once, but it wasn't. It was a short film. So, okay. And I Persepolis? Mean, Persepolis? Oh, I th you're right. I think, yeah. I think so. Occasionally, yeah, there'll be, yeah. you know, some mm -hmm. receptiveness to stories that are a bit more, um, uh, or a bit less, I guess, completely sort of typical mainstream. Usually they don't take risks like that for the most part, but I, I would be absolutely chuffed to bits if um, if you got a look at that would be awesome. And uh, going back to what you're saying about the the independent nature of it all and it coming together over such an extended period of time, I think a big aspect of the indie filmmaking process that a lot of people who listen and read uh, at the site are vocal about struggling with is just staying motivated to follow through persevere kind of reach the finish line and obviously you know on top of everything else COVID of course must have been a pretty big spanner in the works uh for your film uh I remember when you presented at Annecy a couple of years back you mentioned there were some health issues as well and uh overall were there a lot of major struggles the film kind of presented as you were kind of working through it or getting to the end of it and on reflection like how did you work through them was it easy to kind of cope with the people around you or was it kind of a, a bit of a mountain to climb? No, it was uh, definitely a Kilimanjaro, you know, uh, yeah. a, a huge mountain to climb. Um, you know, the, 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 I don't really have a character to, uh, to have patience. I'm not a patient person, you know. I, I want to get everything done yesterday. And so I wake up every morning and I'm like, today I'm going to finish the film. And that's for seven years, you know, like, oh, today I'm going <laughs> to get it, today I'm going to get it all done and then move on to the next thing because I can't wait for this next thing, you know, and, uh, um, but the, the, like, like my secret, like how I stay motivated or, or like what keeps me going, there are two things, I think, for me that works for me is uh, one thing is that I felt all throughout the seven years of production that this is a very important project. 
uh, I wanted to share this story because I felt it was important, not just for me, but for a lot of people. I and, and not just for women, but for everybody who has ever felt different. You know, like uh, like you are a child and people are making fun of you because you're different. That's that's who the film is dedicated to. You know, and uh, and I felt I just wanted to make this film to communicate this. You know, like to 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 express this side of human life. You know. And it allowed me to like go out in the world and and see something and say, oh, I'm gonna bring this into my work, you know, like I'm gonna do this thing and I'm gonna bring it in. Uh, and so I, I, every day when I I I didn't have to suppress my creative impulses. Every time when I had like some, I saw something new, learned something new, or got inspired, I I was like, okay, I can transform it into my work. I can incorporate that in my work, and that was like where I kept that inspiration throughout the seven years. Like, and as an artist, I was able to grow and develop and, and to learn and to, you know, like have new ideas. I don't know how people work for seven years from the storyboard. I think it would, I would just have to kill myself, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, kind of my thing. Um, but yeah, it is um, uh, the, the seven years, uh, you know, of, you know, asking for money, applying for grants, constantly being near uh, bankruptcy, you know, like near, like, oh my God, tomorrow we pay rent and then we have nothing. How we, what, how, what's going to happen? <laughs> how are we going to pay our people? So it was a constant, like, uh, you know, I, I say, you know, it was thousand and one times how the film was almost not made, you know, like there is always a uh, feeling that uh, we can, any moment we can collapse and, and then some other thing would come in and save us the last moment. So it was like a Hollywood movie repeating and repeating and repeating. You know how Hollywood movies, the hero comes in, superhero comes in and saves you. So that's yeah. how we had, we had uh, actually uh, 1600 superheroes, our backers who would come in and save us. Yeah, the backers, the, the Kickstarter backers, the, the private donors, the, you know, like all the support group around the film. And that's another reason why we made the film also, because we, 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 it's a community that is waiting for this film and want it to be released. So we have to do it for them. Yeah. And as, with that in mind, so happy to see it, you know, keep getting into festivals and some really major events and uh, such a strong festival run. I guess we're now more into the sort of distribution stage. Uh, and I'd be, I think a lot of people would be really interested in like hearing a, a how you kind of strategized um, the festival submissions, how you kind of approached that and along the way, how you kind of built up relationships with distributors um, because I think those are generally quite intimidating areas for uh, filmmaking for indie artists. Well, so uh, the film, because it's a feature film, uh, we do have a sales agent, the New Europe Film Sales, uh, with Jan Mozewski in uh, in charge, and the uh, and the sales agent is the one who determines the uh, uh, the. Uh, uh, this festival strategy and they have connections with the festivals. So uh, like my advice to filmmakers would be, uh, get a sales agent before you even finish the film because you need to build a relationship and mutual trust. And also they, um, sometimes the sales agents want to, you know, like, um, make little comments or adjustments to your film, like, I mean, not that major, but still, you know, want to, um, be kind of more collaborative uh, partners in your project. And I work with New Europe Film Sales uh, on uh, Rocks in My Pocket. So we already had a previous relationship and I think they are really wonderful. Uh, you know, I, I think the best, Euro best European sales agency uh, for film, like to my humble opinion, because they do really amazing work. Um, and as says the distributors, you know, that I, th again, you know, that is a sales agent expertise but like for example we did get a distributor in france and that happened because it was in a festival uh and not even in Annecy. the distributor saw it uh, at some other festival uh in Strasbourg, getting a fantastic film festival and uh he liked the film and he took it on and uh so 
um, it doesn't mean that he would take uh, or they would take my next film, but this one they liked to take on and it worked out. Uh, the film was released in France in uh, in uh, in June and it ran for like two months. So I was very happy. I was very, very pleased. Um, yeah, so uh, um, yeah, that is good. But uh, for uh, United States distribution, that's a different story, you know, because we are... Um, me and Sturgis, my partner Sturgis, we are actively involved in in the release because we, we, we feel United States is such a hard market to release uh, theatrically an animated feature film for adults. It's like uh, there's so many strikes against the film uh, just just by how people consume things in the United States. They're like, oh, animated feature film, it's for children. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh so then you have to educate your audience and convince them that this is a uh, film so we are working with a um release company or distribution company uh eight above and uh, they specialize in events like film as event and so um right now we are like being scheduled in uh, uh cities around the united states and uh and then we have a outreach uh, impact producer who is reaching out to local communities and uh, building uh, audience for an event, a specific event. Like, you know, like uh, one screening is dedicated to women, uh, domestic abuse survivors or feminists. And then, and then the conversation afterwards would be geared towards that. The other screening would be geared towards animation students or animation, uh, activists or inter interest, uh, people interested in animation. And the com uh, conversation would be built around that. And so we, we, we just work as to create, uh, a, a, a great event. Like when people, uh, come to the movie, not just to see the film, you know, but to also experience the whole thing around going to movie theater, having conversations, meeting other people, saying something, meeting the filmmaker and all that. So, so this is kind of a way how we are hoping to, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, bring people to theaters, you know, like to, uh, to, to, leave the couch you know and and yeah. uh have experienced the film in the movie theater with other people i i feel like um like for me uh film is a uh, watching a movie is is a communal experience uh like for example and it's really informative like for example one of my favorite recent films is midsummer you know but uh and uh and uh, when I went there uh, to a movie theater, it was before, before pandemic, and uh, we, I would, you know, Americans don't know nothing about this culture, whatever I was on the screen, right? But uh, for me, as a Latvian, like, I, I just really got the dark humor that was in there. And so, like, I would just sit there, and then suddenly I would just start laughing, like, really, like, forced laugh, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and And then there would be, like, a silence, right? And then, like, after like two seconds, the rest of the audience would laugh because it would, it would come, like they would hear my signal saying, I'm laughing. And they would be like, Oh, wait a minute. She was right. It's funny. And so they would laugh too. And at the end, you know, like we were laughing together because we learned what's funny in this film, you know? And, and the same is also, for example, with my love affair is marriage is that, um, some audiences are very quiet. They experience the film internally. And, and, and of course, it's, it's like, it's a film that is not quiet. It's not a tragedy. It's a comedy. And, and I love to present it as a comedy. I have a special presentation to make people laugh before the film starts, right? And when they're given permission to laugh, they start laughing at the first, you know, scene, as a first scene, and then they keep laughing until the end. I mean, of course, it's like a laugh that is like bitter laugh, you know, or a laugh that has like darkness in it. But but still, you know, it's a it's a. But when you are laughing together, something something gets unleashed, you know, some kind of you know shared experience. Like I think that we are too much like hermit uh, hermit uh, snails, you know, like in their own little houses watching our own little things and we don't even know was it film funny because we watched it alone 
And then when you watch it as audience, you know, oh, is it tragedy or is it a comedy? Oh, this is really, really funny. I don't know. That's kind of my my take on experiencing films on a big screen with other people. It's like a like a watch like hearing a story by gun like by a campfire. You know? Yeah, it's it was one of the the first real kind of lifts I think when the world kind of opened up again was being able to go to cinemas and go to festivals and stuff where you could be there and talk. You know, after the films, after the screenings be with people again it was a couple of months where it felt like people didn't quite know how to do it like like they were so out of practice but then once we kind of found our rhythm it's been so nice to kind of have that back you know um and start going out to events and festivals and stuff so i'm really glad that you know timing wise um it's worked out in this sense you're going to be able to to do this and and take it out to people and uh i hope it it yields some interesting discussions yeah, I also feel the timing-wise, I'm kind of really fascinated by that my love affair with marriage was following a Barbie release, right? <laughs> and and I, I'm thinking, well, you know, uh, so there is a Barbie, and European response to Barbie is my love affair with marriage. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. It's, it's an adventure, I feel, you know. Thank you so much to Signe Bauman for taking the time. It's always a lift to get to speak with her. And for the benefit of our stateside listeners, My Love Affair with Marriage is about to embark on a U.S. theatrical run, kicking off on October 6th in New York City at the Quad Cinema. Then from October 13th, it'll get another week-long run at the Lamel Glendale in Los Angeles. If you can't make either of those, then be sure to check out myloveaffairwithmarriagemovie.com slash screenings for a full rundown of where it's playing across the U.S. and Canada between now and the end of the year, as well as where and how to get tickets. It's worth noting that Sydney will be doing Q&As at most of these screenings, so it's definitely worth checking and seeing if they'll be anywhere near you. The website myloveaffairwithmarriagemovie.com is also worth a peruse, as it's absolutely loaded with info about the film and lots of behind-the-scenes goodies that we know you folks love. You can also follow its socials, facebook.com slash myloveaffairwithmarriage. It's on Instagram at myloveaffairwithmarriagemovie, TikTok at myloveaffairwithmarriage, and (sighs) X at M-L-A-W-M underscore movie. So before I go, just a quick mention that if you're hearing this the day the podcast comes out, tomorrow, September 28th in Bristol, I'm hosting another edition of the Bristol Animation Meetup, or BAM, as it conveniently acronymizes to, with my pals at Rumpus Animation and Sun and Moon Animation. We had such a grand time at the King Street Brewhouse, we're doing it there again. So swing by any time from 6.30pm. This time around... We're trialing a new face-to-face networking component for the newcomers to get a few minutes in front of industry professionals for advice, real feedback, potential work stuff, or to just say hello. This time around, we have Louis Jones, creative director at Sun and Moon, Steph Boskill, producer at Rumpus, Jane Davies, director at Arben, and Joanna Hepworth, director at A Productions. All amazing folks. Anyone with a brain and any animation inklings should jump at the chance to speak with. I will also be there for freelance or self-employment advice, indie film chat, or if you want to get involved with Squiggly, our doors are always open, so come say hello. Slots are open between 7pm and 8.30pm, and I believe they're all filled at this point. So why are you even bringing this up, you beardy little tease? I hear you screech obnoxiously. We can still email bristol.animation.meetup at gmail.com and we can pop you on a reserve list or keep you updated as far as future events so you won't miss out. And maybe the reason you didn't hear about it this time, hmm, is that you don't follow us on Instagram or Facebook or (sighs) X. Well, if it's the latter, I can't say I blame you. But we are indeed still on (sighs) X. Follow us at Squiggly. Our Instagram is at Squiggly Animation, and there's also Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. I mean, they all have their foibles, but until Threads takes off, they remain the social media ports of call, and we're stuck with them. Lastly, don't forget that the second edition of Independent Animation, Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films is out now and available from any bookseller worth its salt. But if you want to get it with free shipping, go ahead and track it down at the publisher website, Routledge.com. And heck... 
Because I'm so frickin' nice, I'll even throw in a promo code you can enter at checkout to get 20%, 20% off my god man. The code is AFL03. Don't say I never give you nothing. Frankly, it's a book every indie filmmaker should have on their shelves, and I don't say that because I wrote it. I'm not that kind of narcissist. No, I say it because of the amazing people interviewed throughout. People like, well, Signa Bauman, who we just heard from. How about Bill Plimpton, Don Hertzfeld, Robert Morgan, David O'Reilly, Kirsten Lepore, Chris Shepard, John T. Picking, Yost Lyoma, Rosto, Pez, dozens more, dozens, I tells ya! It's an incredible bunch, and it was a huge honor to bring them all together for the project. It's an embarrassment, I dare say, of inspirational, motivational riches and fantastic advice on how to get your indie project off the ground. Hell, I myself have doubled my filmography since I wrote it. It's that inspiring. Anyway, I've been Ben Mitchell. You can find me at Ben L. Mitchell on Instagram, facebook.com slash Creative, and my website is ben-mitchell.co.uk. Pay me some attention, why don't you? Thanks one last time to the wonderful Signa Bauman for joining me, and until next time, friends, happy independent animating.